So it was very nerve-wracking because you know I've always been kind of sheltered uh, as I grew up. So when I graduated, it was a hype at the height of the financial crisis. So whilst you know it is always all parents wish for their kids to pursue, you know, to stay on in a in a developed country like Australia, you know, we couldn't really find any opportunities back then because most of the opportunities were also kept and reserved for. Uh, for Australians. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Winnie Chua is the co-founder and chief product officer of Policy Street, a Malaysian insurtech startup that recently raised a $15.3 million Series B. Policy Street works directly with over 40 providers globally to offer a comprehensive range of products and services, which include embedded insurance, customized employee benefits, financial advisory, and insurance aggregation, and more. Before Policy Street, Winnie spent over six years at Alliance Global, one of the world's leading insurers and asset managers, with more than 100 million private and corporate consumers in more than 70 countries. Hi, Winnie. So nice to speak with you again. I'm super excited to get to speak with you. Hey, Amanda. So good to speak to you again. I know. I think it's almost one year <laughs> since our last time. Is uh, it? Almost. Wow. Maybe has it been half that long? a year? <laughs> half a year plus. <laughs> This is the last great, time we've seen each great. other. I mean, that was your maiden trip to KL, right? Yeah, 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 I've never been there before. So I was really excited to be there. And you were one of the highlights of my trip. Like even before I met you, it's like, I get to meet Winnie on this trip. <laughs> very great, great. Likewise, you know, um, very inspired by what you do. And, you know, one year on, look how far you've come. <laughs> you know, your subscription, and the newsletter is blowing up. You know, congratulations to you, Amanda. Oh, thank you so much. I think the last time we chatted, it was more about me, but now I get to speak to you and ask you more about yourself. So I guess the tables have turned. Sure. <laughs> I think the first thing I always <laughs> ask people for the like for the podcast, for these conversations, is a bit more about your background, what your childhood looks like. I think you shared a bit about that last time, but for me to get to share with everybody else, I'd love to hear what your childhood looked like. Were you one of five siblings? Where did you grow up in Malaysia and what did your childhood look like? Right. Okay, great. I grew up in a family of four kids. So I'm the eldest of the family. I think the the fact that I'm the eldest of four children is the fact that I have a lot of filial piety in me to be the second mom in the sense. And even the decisions that I've made in my life, it's also very much, you know, supported and also endorsed by my parents, you know. Being an Asian Chinese background, uh, that's pretty much you know a prominent feature of my childhood. I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, so a city girl from young, and even my choice of career was also stemmed from the need for uh, my parents' approval. Because when I was seventeen, I actually thought of becoming a performing artist. You know, uh, that was the high school. We, we you know we were preparing for our high school 
uh, examinations and then I popped by a question to my mom. I said, mom, you know, I would like to become a performing artist after I graduate. I want to sign up in a college of music or college for performing arts. Well, my mom, you know, in her very well, um, you know, she only looks out for me, right? So in her thoughts, performing artist is not something that can make money in a Malaysian context. And so she said that, and I quote, use your brain. You know, it's very Asian thinking that, you know, performing artists, you can't use your brain. Um, but, you know, out of filial piety, I, I went ahead and I also signed up. You know, I, I dropped my dreams of becoming a performing artist. And then out of the many options that I was given, I thought something in mathematics and statistics would be quite suitable for me. And so I decided to enroll in an actuarial studies degree. And then there started my path in insurance. So when you were growing up, you were super into music, right? I think it was singing. Yes, singing, dancing, I acted. Yeah, so very much involved since I was a little kid. I remember performing ever since I was five. You know, in sports school, I was the, you know, the captain of my kindergarten sports team. So I actually sang the national anthem. That was probably my debut. And I never turned back since then. <laughs> so out of everything, was singing the one you loved the most? Or would you say that it was pretty even split around everything? Right. I think uh, singing is definitely a prominent feature in my life. I started singing when I was, you know, five, six something that I, I do have as a natural ability. And I also was part of the choir team. I still sing now as well, you know, on my on the side, I do sing in church. And um, it is something that has always been part of my life. And I do really want to hope that, uh, you know, it will continue to be part of my life until I, until I retire and until my old age. Yeah. And then when you were younger, before your mom said you couldn't be a performing artist, what did you envision for yourself? Like, did you want to be a famous singer, famous actress, or were you just open to any sort of pathway? I think the fact that I always thought to myself, I've always been born as an artistic person. It's strange, right? I'm doing something very technical and something very scientific. But growing up, I always liked the the beauty that comes with uh, within the arts. I get emotional. In fact, listening to music, you know, looking at arts, you see, seeing people dancing, it's, it's such a, a wonderful and heartfelt expression. And so I thought, you know, that was kind of like my thing. But having said that, you know, out of filial piety, my mom said, you know what, do something that is pretty uh, recession-proof and safe. And so I kind of like picked up the logical, structured side along the way. But having said that, you know, I just had this epiphany that, you know what, it is, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything has its purpose. And uh, I believe that as an entrepreneur, you kind of like have to need a bit of, a little bit of both, right? You need a bit of uh, the artistic side, which is the ability to, to thrive in the unknown, to uh, be creative in problem solving, and yet at the same time doing it in a very strategic and also analytical way. So I believe that, you know, I have the best of, best of both worlds like, in, in the end of the day. And did you pick the math? route because you were good at math or did you just think that was the most logical um, side yeah I didn't want to be a doctor uh, my mom said you know I'm afraid of blood I think I will faint and I won't last long as a medical doctor so the only other option would be something to do with math something that is very much office bound safe environment uh, yeah so that that's why I picked uh, actuarial 
I'm also afraid of blood. Like if I see a video with blood, <laughs> even like an animated video of blood pulsing, like the red blood cells moving, I get the chills. <laughs> so not just real blood, <laughs> even animated blood is really scary for me. <laughs> Are you the same? Yeah, and then also, you know, on hindsight, the long hours that uh, a doctor has oh, to do. I mean, I, I really have a lot of wonderful friends who are doctors and I, you know, they are really a gift of the world. Uh, they are so noble, you know, the, the amount of times that they have to be on call and they are pretty much married to their jobs and uh, <laughs> it is a real sacrifice which I believe, um, you know, really kudos to all the medical doctors out there. And then, so you picked actuarial science and you studied that in Australia. What did studying overseas give you in terms of like the impact on your life and your mindset? Because I think, as you said, you're the oldest among your siblings. And I think that gives you a totally yep. different experience from everyone. But being overseas and sort of away from your family, your parents, how did that experience sort of impact you in Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, so being the eldest, which means that there's no precedence, right? I'm the first one out. So it was very nerve-wracking because, you know, I've always been kind of sheltered uh, as I grew up. So being in a foreign country of my own, um, I have my homesickness uh, moments as well, my crying episodes with my mom. I said, oh, you know, I'm so alone and whatnot. But I think um, after probably a week, uh, once I became more uh, accustomed to my new environment and also starting to make friends I I had a time of my life I think Australia um, especially specifically Canberra which is where I was based you know Canberra is uh it was it is man-made city it is the capital of Australia and it's pretty much pretty much in the desert right so you can imagine you know it's not as glamorous as <laughs> Melbourne and or Sydney, Sydney. <laughs> there's not much things to do there during my time so you pretty much live on campus and there are a lot of uh, wonderful flora and fauna. In fact, you hear ducks uh, quacking in the morning. And uh, from a city background where, you know, you hear traffic lights and people honking all the time to a place where it's so quiet and serene, I think it really gave me a chance to love the quiet and love the um, love how to be alone, like to be, you know, in, in comfortable with being uh, in the quiet and also in the serene. And uh, I've, I've changed for the better. And number two, it's also to be involved in some of the campus activities where I was also part of the committee for international students department. I was also the co-founder of uh, ANU Dance Club with my sister. So we uh, had the opportunity to perform in many of our university events. We even traveled to a very rural part of South, uh, New South Wales. You know, it is a school where they never, they've never seen Asians before. Really? And they were such celebrities. <laughs> they pulled out all their cameras and started to say, hey, can I take a photo with you and whatnot? So that was a very interesting experience, you know, just to really go out there and become ambassador of the of the uni in such capacity. So I, I thought of uh, my years in ANU not only gave me that leg up in terms of my education, but it is also a degree of life. You know, you get to learn a little bit about yourself and what you are capable of. And that confidence building uh, really started from there. So I think you also mentioned that as the eldest of four siblings and like the girl at that, wait, actually, I should probably reword this to be clear for people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think as the eldest of your siblings and as the eldest girl at that, it might be difficult for some parents to let you go to another country on your own. 
Was that something you experienced or your parents experienced as well? Yes, definitely. Uh, they would call in every week um, asking me, how am I doing? Have I been eating well? And I think that's just the con- unconditional love that my parents have for me. Um, I just want to also share that, you know, my parents came from humble beginnings. Uh, my mom never had a chance to study. She was she brought up in a family of uh, six brothers. And her grandmother told her that, you know, women shouldn't study. Women should help uh, with the house chores. And she had to kind of like creep out or sneak out on her own to work three jobs and pay for her own college um, fees. And so she managed to actually get a diploma during her time. My dad, you know, grew up poor, very big family, 10 siblings. And he actually got the opportunity to go to university under scholarship. So my parents really come from humble beginnings. Uh, which is also the reason why I'm so filial because I know how much sacrifice they have um, done to bring me to this point. And going back to my mom, you know, she always ensures that uh, her her kids, right, her her daughters, especially you know, my sister and I, have the equal opportunity to education. Even though it's scary to send out your daughters to the uh, to the to the unknown world, but it's important because she never really had that in her lifetime, and she wants to also give us that opportunity in our lifetime. Right. So for her, it was already difficult to go to university in Malaysia. And so an opportunity like yeah. Australia would be like completely even out of her own imagination. Like she can't even dream, I guess, in that in that perspective. But she's able to do that for you, her, her eldest daughter. Yeah. So I guess while you were in Australia, was it difficult to adjust to studying overseas as a woman? Or were there any other challenges that you had? And for other right. I guess, people listening, especially who want to study overseas? What would you share to other young women who want to study overseas or take opportunities outside of their home countries? Right, right. Um, great question. I think Australia has always been very multicultural and multiracial. So I do not think that um, it is a place where uh, gender plays a huge significant part. But I do think that, um, you know, traditionally, especially in the Asian context, uh, more if, I, if I'm not wrong, you know, more women tend to then study really hard and then later on uh, not continue on in their chosen path. So university is something that they do have the equal opportunity to. But after a while, after they get employment, then they kind of like drop off from the workforce. So I would like to also like, you know, share that, it, it, you know, for for women who are looking out to, to venture out to the university uh, degree, do not think that you're the minority. You're actually the majority because, in fact, in the world's statistics, I believe more women are in university and more women are stepping up in terms of you know, achieving those uh, good grades in university. But having said that, I also want to urge that women who step up and you know, pursue a university uh, education to stay on, to, to pursue truly their, their, their careers of choice and I believe over time with the many gender equality initiatives, more and more opportunities for balanced lives between family and also career, uh, more and more women should continue on that journey to pursue their dreams. Yeah. And for you, after you graduated university, what did you have planned? I mean, I think actuarial science, science kind of explains what you end up doing afterwards. But I think other people also consider other careers when they're at the brink of graduation. So what was your 
mindset when you're about to graduate? Were you planning to go back to Malaysia? Were you planning to stay in Australia? And what kind of jobs were you looking at at the time? Right. So when I graduated, it was a height, at the height of the financial crisis. <laughs> so whilst, you know, it is always all parents wish for their kids to pursue, you know, to stay on in a, in a developed country like Australia, you know, we couldn't really find any opportunities back then because most of the opportunities were also kept and reserved for, uh, for Australians, you know, because of the difficult climate back then. And for me as well, uh, back then, my, my then boyfriend was also planning to come back to Malaysia. Uh, he's also an Australian graduate. And so because of um, those personal reasons, I also decided to come back and to start my career in Malaysia. Um, it is not an um, inferior choice, I have to point out. It was just, you know, circumstances and also uh, family reasons, personal reasons. I continued to start my career uh, locally and back home. And within the three months, you know, I started my 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 career in Alliance. So um, job hunting was pretty fast and smooth for me. And uh, I really thank God for that. Yeah. So when you got back to Malaysia, how did you go about finding a new job? Did you only look at opportunities in the insurance space or were you open to other kinds of roles? Yeah, sure. I was open to different roles. In fact, um, I applied to various various roles. So the main thing is actuarial. So naturally, I am geared to apply for those. But I also applied for consulting. So I was in the final stages with some of the consulting firms in, in, in Malaysia because I also was quite interested in strategy. I even applied and got a position in an analyst, as an analyst role in an investment fund uh, house. So that was quite interesting as well. You know, you get to see the stock market and uh, analyze and, you know, make sure that, you know, the, the, the people who are invested, uh, they get their returns. So I actually had these three pathways. And I thought, okay, you know what, I studied, since I studied actuarial and there was an offer for actuarial, I took upon that as my first choice. So never, never looked back since, I suppose. <laughs> I think it's clear that you didn't look back. I think you stayed for six years, seven years in the same company after that first job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, funny enough, you know, uh, you know, universe or whatever you call it, uh, has it that uh, I, even though I picked an actuarial role, I got to I got the opportunity to do strategic work within my six years in Alliance. I also got to do a lot of analytical work, you know, in the in the in the aspects of insurance, not so much investments, but insurance. So I just really have to be very thankful that, you know, even though my path was an actual role, being an actuarial person in Alliance actually gave me the opportunity to expand um, even other areas other than actuarial as well. What was your sort of experience at Allianz? I know that you started out there from your first job onwards, but I think you got to travel a bit, right, during your time there. And how did that experience sort of help you grow in your career? Because I think it's also very difficult to just move up in one company. I think one way other people you know, get promoted and move oh, up is by okay. jumping between different um, companies, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that you know, Alliance is my first and only job before I came out to start my own business. I did pretty much most of the actuarial responsibilities there is. So I was in pricing, I was in reserving, uh, capital modeling, you know, all these actuarial jargons and insurance jargons. Um, but I think at the four and a half years point, my then superior came up to me and said, you know, would you like the opportunity to expand your horizon in a non-actual role? 
because at that point in time, uh, my company wanted to expand the commercial strategy uh, to do more commercial risk. And uh, so I took upon that opportunity to move out of actuarial to then do strategy. And that really uh, expanded my horizon because I no longer look at things on an analytical standpoint, but I also get the opportunity to meet brokers, um, agents, to, to really, instead of seeing um, insurance in a cell, in an Excel spreadsheet, I get to see the people behind the contributors of these um, results. And so um, that really helped me to see that insurance is not just about you know dollars and cents. It's not about um, profitability. It's also the community lives enrichment that uh, it's so satisfying. And you got to see sort of the ecosystem that like makes it all happen, right? Because you got to talk to the yeah, stakeholders. Yeah. And then what was your experience yeah, like I working to... overseas too? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was a lag. <laughs> but I mean, I wanted to ask about like your experience at Allianz since um, you mentioned you worked overseas. What was your experience like working overseas for them in the trips that you had there? Yeah, yeah. So I was, um, you know, had the opportunity to travel around the world. I went to Paris, Munich, Australia, Sydney, Istanbul, yeah, to name a few. And it was those uh, excursions that I got to also be closer to some of my management um, to be able to uh, speak to them and see it from their point of view. I think as a 20-year-old, to be able to travel with your management, with your senior management, um, it was such a golden opportunity to 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 learn about leadership and also to learn about strategic uh, viewpoints. And I also got the opportunity to uh, stay in Munich for four months. Um, it was a, a attachment with the commercial pricing team within the Allianz uh, headquarters in Munich. And I got to learn German, you know, got to to have a taste of the German beer, you know, experience the German springtime and uh, all the way to summer. And I think living abroad in a foreign country whereby no one really, I guess Germans, German language is being spoken as a primary language. It has its challenges, but it's also very uh, eye-opening because uh, you no longer uh, go, you know, you're in your outside of your comfort zone. You kind of like have to like, you know, you just sign languages and whatnot. But overall, Munich has always been very international and there are a lot of uh, foreign colleagues from other countries. It was just a melting pot of cultures that we get to come together to share. And my personal highlight would be to go to a, you know, a beer fest <laughs> where you get to be dressed in a dirndl, which is the traditional German costume. And uh, yeah, we 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 did the whole uh, festival and get to drink uh, the dark beer and you know and celebrate and just be immersed in that local culture. Um, I think that those are just you know some of the memories that uh, will be lasting a lifetime. <laughs> what were the different highlights of your four months in Germany, like on the personal side and in the work side? Right. Yeah. So uh, highlights, I think personally, I got to travel a lot. Uh, I think I pretty much blew my bonus on that four months. I bought a ticket to, you know, watch Manchester United. You know, back then I was a huge fan of football. I flew all, all the way to Manchester over the weekend just to watch a match. I saw many, many artists. I went to Berlin over the weekend. You know, really, really took the time out to travel solo. 
to experience different cultures. I think that's the benefit of working in Europe. You know, everything else is all within a flight away or a train train ride away. And I did it all on myself. So I kind of had a freedom to decide what I would like to eat and where I would like to go. And those days, you know, I was a little bit gullible if you think about it. You know, if I think about it, you know, now, you know, would I want to travel alone? Probably think twice, you know, I was just thinking <laughs> to myself, wow, such gutsy woman was I to do it all on my own. And I also lived on, people, on people's couches. Uh, I remember couch surfing in Barcelona. I was attending uh, the Primavera Festival. Yeah, I couch surf, stayed with a bunch of girls. And then, you know, I literally bumped into their, you know, took a stayed in their couch. And the next morning, I checked out and flew <laughs> back to Munich. So it was those moments that uh, YOLO moments that uh, I really, really kind of like, you know, trained me to be uh, okay in an unknown environment, in an environment where it's really outside my comfort zone. But just go ahead and immerse myself in it. Yeah. How would you find these people with the open cultures? Were there like websites for those back then? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So funny story. So I actually uh, approached one of my colleagues then. And I asked, okay, do you know anyone from Barcelona? And then he goes, hey, I do have a friend who is, you know, staying there and also going for the festival. So I literally kind of like knocked on their door and said, hi, you must be this so-and-so's friend. And then I just bumped into their couch. And we <laughs> went to the festival together, partied until 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning, I remember. Slept for three hours. And then I checked out and flew back to Munich. <laughs> Do so you still keep in touch her. with them <laughs> until now? I'm so curious. No, I mean, I would have, I would love to, but I, I guess, you know, life happens. And yeah, it was really those, it was just this one night kind of moment. And, uh, but it will always be something that will be marked, you know, in my life. Yeah. I got to also see a lot of acts that I really loved. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been very, uh, one of those uh, memories that uh, will forever, you know, be etched in my heart. You know, now there are lots more like measures for like security and everything. But I think if my, my parents had never let me go on one of those, <laughs> not in a, like not I even a room my in my friend's knew. house, <laughs> much less a I don't couch. think my parents knew, you know. I just told them, yeah, I'm safe, number one. I'm alive, <laughs> number two. And I think less is more when it comes to my parents. <laughs> At least they know you're alive. I think that's, the, that's what they ask for anyway. They don't need to know the details, maybe. <laughs> And I, and I do want to, you know, as I look back, I do think that there were many guardian angels around me. Uh, you know, I just really was fortunate to meet some of the best, the, the, the good people. Um, things could have gotten worse, to be honest, <laughs> but I uh, couldn't get them bad, you know. But uh, I really had a lot of guardian angels and wonderful friends who have um, been um, so gracious to offer their love and their care uh, when I was alone. And so I am really, really blessed like, during those times. I mean, it's good to hear that. I mean, I have some friends who would say, oh, I can never do that because I'm a girl. It's so unsafe. But I mean, you've done it. You're alive and you're speaking to me now. <laughs> <laughs> and I live to tell the story. Yes. So I think if anybody is listening, they can probably <laughs> get the courage now. <laughs> in terms of the time that you were in Germany, like what's the experience actually working with Alliance in Germany in the headquarters, especially at your age at the time? And as a woman, I feel like insurance is such a male-dominated yeah. space, whether it's in the startup space or in the traditional insurance space. So what was yeah. it like working there? Were you one of how many women, um, et cetera? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So in all my trips uh, out to these countries, you know, whether is it Paris or Istanbul, we always go in a group, right? And I'm always going to be the only one that's in my 20s. I was always in my tw- the only one in my 20s and I was the minority, you know, I was the one of the few women or no women. You know, I used to go with a bunch of guys, a bunch of my senior managers who are men. And of course, uh, it is quite intimidating at first. Uh, you know, what, what do I have to say to convince um, people of, you know, 20 years of experience and to get them to hear what I have to say? So, but those fears quickly dissipates because at the end of the day, you're here to do a job. And as long as you do your job well, you're firm, you're assertive with what you have to say. I think most people do give you that benefit of the doubt, um, do, do want to hear from you. And I think um, as women, yes, you know, at first glance, you might, people might think that you're just a pretty face, you know, you got here probably, you know, not, not on your own, you probably, you know, got here um, lucky. But I think, you know, over time, people who work with you closely can see that, you know, you sincerely have substance. You're not just, uh, you know, a pretty face. You're just, you have substance. You have something to say. And I think over time, even my colleagues in Munich who are also male-dominated, then, you know, they're so gracious to help help me out. And, you know, they have also many times, um, I'm surprised that, uh, you know, we you know, at, at such a young age, I could actually hold on my own. Uh, I remember having the opportunity to be the only Asian to share about the Asian insurance uh, landscape in front of all my European colleagues, American colleagues. And I was the only female uh, presenter then. And uh, yeah, after this session, you know, everyone was very much, um, very much uh, aware and also gained knowledge about what is happening in Asia. And I also felt like I, I you know, waved the, the the Malaysian flag proudly in, in that setting. So yeah, it's those moments that really reminded me that sometimes it's sometimes it's all in our heads, you know, as females, we tend to kind of like undersell ourselves, underestimate what we can do, our voice. But you know, to be honest, if the world is supportive, you know, if the world sees that you have something to say, more often than not, there will be uh, platforms for you to be able to speak up. So in your case, being the minority, like the only Asian and the only woman actually worked in your favor because you had a unique perspective. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's good that, uh, you know, because you're the you're someone that doesn't look the same, right? Doesn't look like the, the rest. You kind of like stand out uh, at first glance. But at the same time, if you start speaking to them, you have that substance. I think more, more and more people would be also be uh, more willing to, to listen. I think that's part of the women charm and the feminine charm that I also like to urge the listeners out there. You know, in the working world, uh, there are a lot of books, a lot of leadership books that are focused on um, the statistics that are majority men, right? You read, okay, you know, seven out of 10 leadership qualities is X, Y, Z. But actually, you know, the survey is done out of mostly men, right? So because that's just how it is, right? And only in the 70s, women are, only starting to be given the opportunity to uh, rise up the ranks in the corporate world. And so you always will have to come across many, many people with preconceptions of how a woman should lead or how women should behave in the workplace. And I also want to urge uh, the ladies out there, you know what, you know, that's statistics. But right now we are actually, um, you know, trying to chart a new path 
And because of the fact that we are a minority, we are trailblazing. We are setting a new standard. And I also want to urge that, uh, you know, leadership doesn't, doesn't always look the same. Because as, as a woman, we have our femininity and we also have uh, parts of us that is a little bit different from what is seen currently in the, the world out there. And it, it, this is also my, my personal journey, right? In the past six years and seven years of running Policy Street, I often think that I need to be somebody that I am not. You know, I, I, I used to think that I should be more assertive, more um, hard, you know, in, in my decisions making because that's how I thought would be the right recipe of leading a team. And it was only in the last few years I decided that, you know, my leadership style is more nurturing and I like to talk to my team. I like to speak to them about what's happening in their lives because I do understand that, you know, as human beings, you're not a bipolar person. You don't like, you know, at work, you're this person and outside of work, you're another person. You're always going to bring, you know, non-work things to work, right? And how do I think that uh, I can become a better leader as a female is to be able to allow my team to become a more holistic human being, right? Not just to become a performer at work, but also be to become a holistic and decent human being. If they are okay in those parts of their lives, naturally, they're going to bring their best self to, to the workplace. And so that's why I want to urge the, uh, the ladies, listeners out there, you know what, don't shy away from exuding that femininity in your workplace, that natural um, nurturing side of yours, because, you know, the landscape, the working landscape will change because more and more people like us are in the workforce. And hopefully with that, we can actually achieve a more inclusive environment for everyone to thrive in. I think that's a that's a great point. I feel like when I also started working and when I started being like a founder myself, I thought leadership looked like black and white. Like you only have to do things this way or else you're not a good leader. But then I think the same with the overtime, I realized like I don't have to be exactly like what male founders act like because it's it's difficult to change who you are, right? And I think as women, there are certain like yeah. natural inclinations. I don't think I'm I'm the loudest person. I don't think I'm yeah. the most serious like 24 seven. And I feel like that was one of the challenges I personally had because for a few months, I was like, okay, I think I have to be more assertive. I think I have to read more books to act more like this. But then I feel like recently as I sort of tapped into how I naturally am, I started to feel better at work, but I think I also started seeing things work better. So I feel like personally, especially as a young female founder, that's something I wish I learned earlier. <laughs> but you know, you're at a very young age as well. So you know, you're, you're way ahead, you know, of the curve. And, you know, I think the sky's the limit for you, Amanda. I hope so. <laughs> One of the things I was super curious to hear about from you was like transitioning from corporate to a startup. Like, what was that like for you? both in terms of like how that personally felt and how that translates to being a founder, like your corporate experience. Um, so running an InsurTech is, it's very, it's very unique as compared to the other industries because firstly, insurance is such a highly regulated industry. Um, you know, you have your central bank involved, you have the um, many, many um, legacy uh, regulations involved. Uh, that's number one. Number two is insurance is inherently a very lucrative in industry. Um, it is highly profitable. 
um, and you see all your agents and your different distributions, you know, really doing uh, very well in this industry. And number three, um, insurance is something that is largely misunderstood. And, you know, people always think that insurance is a necessary evil. It's something that people don't really think about. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you don't think about dying, right? You, you think about, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to conquer that. I'm going to have growth. Insurance is probably the last thing you you think about in, when you wake up in the morning. So with all these complexities and this uniqueness of insurance, um, I believe that with the corporate training that I received in Allianz, you know, navigating legislations, regulations, understanding the intricacies of how insurance works definitely benefited in running a startup. Of course, you know, I never run a business before. In fact, I always tell people that I am an accidental entrepreneur and I never really thought of me. I never really imagined myself being a business owner, to be honest, uh, until my partners, you know, came and talked to me and convinced me to step out of my comfort zone as well, which I eventually did. And so Intratech is just um, a blend of, you know, having that corporate and technical knowledge, yet at the same time, having that agility of a uh, entrepreneur uh, or business, right? So I think it is uh, on one hand, a good thing to have as a formative uh, foundation, right? Technical knowledge. But I also had to unlearn, relearn insurance in a different lens. Because what we're trying to do is trying to do something to become a challenger of the industry, right? Do something that's different. Otherwise, you know, why, why would we exist? You know, what's the use of us existing in this industry if it's not to challenge the status quo? So I personally had to unlearn, relearn insurance. And in that process, I actually had to had a lot of arguments and a lot of disagreements with my partners because they come in from a non-insurance lens, right? So I, I you know, during the early days, I would tell them, no, this is not how insurance should be done, you know? I have more experience. I know how it's supposed to be done and things like that. And time and time again, I was proven wrong, right? I'm very much humbled uh, by my journey of, of uh, you know, relearning and unlearning. And I think right now I'm at the stage where, you know, I'm very different from where I started seven years ago. I, I would consider myself more of a marketeer now compared to an a actuarial person. So yeah, always marketing uh, you know, the business and finding new opportunities for growth for my business. And yeah, so I, I mean, to, to answer your question, yeah, definitely it helps in the corporate world. But at the same time, I also needed to unlearn some of my you know, corporate um, tendencies as well. And then I guess going into your role at Policy Street and co-founding it, what was like, what's the story behind the start of Policy Street? How did your co-founders convince you to leave your nice job at Allianz <laughs> and join them where you probably <laughs> yeah. don't get to go to Munich, yeah, exactly. you don't get to travel and you probably don't get to earn nearly as much um, as your friends. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't know. I think it's all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I also believe that it's all um, God's timing. Um, I was at the stage of my career where I was also seeking for something different. Um, but I didn't think that the difference was, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, to be <laughs> honest. And I also started to do some soul searching, you know, through my travels and whatnot. And I was also very much curious about this word for, called fintech. 
because that was in 2015 where fintech was this new buzzword you know oh technology and financial services you know how do you actually use technology to democratize financial services products and i started to dig more and more about you know the insurtech specifically insurtech scene in the southeast asian market in 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 other parts of europe I also had the opportunity to even present something in Munich. You know, I, I literally had no experience, but I kind of like forced to do the research to then present something to my Munich colleagues. And through my research, I realized that it's such a golden opportunity. It's such a wonderful timing to do this. And, you know, during the same time, not coincidental, my partners actually approached me. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, this can't be a coincidence. This must be something, right? This must be a confirmation of something bigger than myself. And so I agreed principally to join them, sign a contract over email, to be honest. Like, you know, there's no like actual contract. It was just an email and I said, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> and then we moonlighted, you know, we moonlighted. Uh, we would work uh, our day jobs. And then after work, we would go to a nearby uh, food court in Chaos Central where I was at. Uh, obviously, they're guys, you know, they're gracious enough to come to me instead. <laughs> so we would work out of that food court for about probably three hours. And then back then, I took public transportation. And so on the way back, uh, then we would discuss and say, are we seriously doing this? Are we going to seriously do, do this? And um, so in all, I think a few months later, we actually raised our pre-seed fund uh, via Credo Fund. Um, so it's, it's like a grant uh, that is offered by the Malaysian government. Really, really thankful for that because... That was the money that we used to build our MVP. And so once we got that MVP funding, uh, sorry, once we get we got the grant, we thought, you know what, this is the time. You know, we have to get serious about this. You know, are we doing this or not? So after six months, you know, we decided, yeah, you know, we're just going to give it a shot. And all of us decided to resign uh, at the same time. And in December 2016, uh, we were all full-time with Policy Street. And the decision leading up to that, you know, I had to literally um, make a lot of financial changes. I actually sold my car. I was driving a very nice car for my, you know, inherited from my dad. And I just sold that off because, you know, I could no longer afford the maintenance for that car. I moved out on my own place. I actually kind of begged my parents to take me back home <laughs> so that I don't have to pay, pay my mortgage. You know, I get to rent out my place and I get to use that rental money to pay my mortgage so for the first few months it was tough because i literally you know went kind of like have my emergency fund to, to to survive on and i also remember very one incident that i that i encountered whereby i needed to go back to my ex-company to ask them to partner with us you know obviously as an entrepreneur you always want to go with your first degree of network right so naturally as an insurtech you need an insurance partner so who else would I go to other than Allianz, right? Because they yeah. are my ex-company. So I went there. It's like literally from being an employee to now asking them to work with us. It's it's a very unique um, position, to be honest, because you're now like asking them for a favor now. And number one. Number two is I remember after the meeting, I was sweaty because I didn't want to park in an expensive parking. I parked somewhere really far away from the office. And then I saw my ex-colleagues walking past the car and they were holding these Starbucks cups and then and with their high heels, you know, four inch, five inch high heels and the tight, tight skirts, you know, very nice corporate looking uh, attire. And they were just chatting and having fun. And 
And I was looking at them, you know, sweaty and with <laughs> my back, you know, and all that. And I actually cried. I actually really burst out in tears in my car because I thought to myself, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing being sweaty in my car when I could have had that kind of life? You know, the life that I'm so carefree. I had my lunch. I can do, you know, have my Starbucks, you know, yeah, back then conditioning. when I was, you know, <laughs> in the early days. Yeah, in the early days, I couldn't really afford a drink, right? You just you just want to make sure that your, you, you keep your runway tight, right? Or your own personal runway tight. And so that was really the that was the pivotal moment. I remember very clearly that, uh, you know what, uh, it is a sacrifice. It is a huge sacrifice. But I trust that, you know, things will, you know, uh, turn around, and which it did. You know, we raised our seat round um, uh, shortly after. And yeah, you know, really, you know, all systems go uh, after that. I think that's one of the, the best illustrations of how painful it is to be sometimes because for some people, it's only in their head where they're like, oh, I see on Facebook that my friend bought a house um, or that my friend is doing this or that. But for you, it's like literally right in front of you and not just a friend. It was probably people who are... In, or were in the same position as you and ex- living the exact life that you would have lived if you didn't take yeah. the jump. Exactly. <laughs> Infinitely exactly. worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think these are all part and parcel of developing grit and resilience because I think these are moments where, you know, these are these are checkpoints, right, in your life that you, you ask yourself, are you really doing this for the right reasons? You know, back then, I wanted to make a change in the insurance industry. And that requires some level of sacrifice and some level of trade-offs, right? Which is what, um, you know, Policy Street's journey was, right? You know, the trade-off of not being in a very fancy office, the trade-off of not traveling around the world so freely. But the, the other side, the other side of the coin is the ability to craft something that could be very extraordinary for this industry and for this market. And with that true north, it was very easy to then stay on the course. If I did not have that true north, if I did not, you know, wasn't clear and I was easily swayed by the external factors that are around me, I probably we probably wouldn't last this long <laughs> as, a, as a company. Yeah. So you would say those are the necessary sort of tests. And apart from that experience, what were the other sort of similar moments that you've had throughout your journey? I mean, it's almost seven years at this point. What were the other tests or checkpoints? Yeah. Another one, the huge one was, uh, you know, when I started to tell my relatives, my friends about my intention to become an entrepreneur, they tell me like at my age was my, I was 27. I was 28, turning 28. I was single. I didn't have a family. I was, you know, I didn't have a husband then. And then they tell me, Oh, you know, you're you're 28. You should be focusing on looking for a husband, you know, focusing on settling down. You know, what are you doing? You're not gonna, no one's gonna marry someone who is a business owner who is so career-minded. I remember this word very clearly uh, among some of my uh, I guess they they mean well, right? Because they're concerned, right? Yes. But at the same time, it just goes to show that uh, you know, society has their own preconceived and predetermined ways of how a woman should live or how women should excel in their careers, right? You should, yeah, have a good career, but at the end of the day, your main purpose in life is just to uh, get married and have kids and, uh, you know, have a white picket fence kind of life, which is not always the case because, you know, as women, we have 
we have our you know our ladies in the 70s to thank to because they actually sacrificed and fought a lot for our equality right now. And so I think again this was the pivotal moment that shows me that you know if no one else uh before me has done this, you know, let it be me to be the first one to pave the way for future women to to say that it is okay and it's absolutely normal to pursue a path like this because um you know it's only going to be very much rewarding for ourselves and also for the future generations out there but you give us sort of a look into what work is like at policy street like what have been the most difficult moments in building policy street whether that's specific to building a startup or specifically about building in the insurtech space so I always tell people that uh, you know most things can be solved because you as long as you have that iteration process, you have the problem solving skills. But one thing that is absolutely tough is managing people. Like a, a company is only as strong as its people, and I believe that throughout this seven years journey, the one thing that is most rewarding for me personally and the most painful is people because you know people come from different stages of their lives, their different backgrounds, different learn experience. And it's is sometimes you can't you can't fix people. And you can't have a team where they're all the same. You can't hire someone like you, right? Then what's the point? Right? So I think that's one thing that has been very prominent is the ability to do something, um, especially when you have no money, right? At the first start, you kind of like have to morph yourself to fill up that gap of the business. So I actually had to do tech, I actually had to do operations uh, in my formative year of my formative years of Policy Street, just because you just don't have the money to to hire a, a very good um, skilled person to begin with. So but you but as a as a leader in Policy Street, it's really how do you learn fast enough to know what it takes to be good at this role and then to then hire someone to fill in that role and then let go. I think this is a real skill because you not only need to know really fast about what is required, you will also need to then hire the best people then to be able to let go and do something else. I think that's what every founder really wants to strive to do so. And one of the difficult challenges would be how do you find the right talent, especially when you are an unknown startup, especially when you don't have funding, you can't afford people who are uh, earning X amount of money and you know, most people are not, uh, not all people are very convinced of your vision, especially when you have no, nobody, right? I didn't have an Allianz brand behind me. Yeah. I just have, you know, an unknown brand, right? <laughs> so that was the, uh, the the initial painstaking challenges that we have to face. And over time, I believe that we have uh, refined our talent acquisition uh, methodology, but also to also see people as part of parcel of, building our startup and not everyone is going to be part of our journey, right? Everyone is has their own lives to live and has their own um has their own goals to achieve in their in their career. But what is most important as personally as an entrepreneur is to know that when they are here in our business, when they're here with us, we want to bring the best out of them. We want to give them the the biggest platform for them to uh, achieve their biggest potential. So that along the years of their career, you know, one day, they will always remember that, you know, it was it was at Policy Street where they learned something that changed their lives forever. It was at Policy Street that they have discovered who they really truly are. It was at Policy Street that they 
they know what they are capable of. And I think as long as we we are able to do that in the people that in the people of in lives in the lives of people who have come through our doors, and I think that's a very good job well done. And it's something that I'm absolutely contented with. Um, you know, whatever happens to Policy Street. And I mean, you're one of the very few female founders in Southeast Asia and one of the even more few in the insure tech space. What has your experience been as a female founder, especially as someone who's not, for example, the CEO? What are the experiences you've had, good and bad, um, in your role? Yeah. So I take care of the product operations and the reassurance side of the business because I'm uh, out of the three founders, um, I'm the I'm the only one that has the insurance um, experience. So naturally, you know that that becomes my uh, area of expertise. Uh, some of the good things that comes with being a female uh, insurtech founder is that open doors really because you know people would would be very interested to know what drives a person to do such a thing, right? Because you don't fit the natural profile. So I, I felt that um, because of my experience and also who I am, a lot of people are pretty open to hearing what I have to say. Uh, even, you know, insurance companies who I've knocked on many, many doors, uh, you know, uh, to date, I think I've knocked on more than 100 people's doors, you know, to ask them to partner with us. They've always been very gracious to then give me opportunity to speak about, you know, what we have to do. The con is, I guess, to a certain extent, because I'm the only female amongst my partners, right? So sometimes uh, there are decisions made uh, or rather the discussions done. And I think to myself, is it because I'm a female and I think a certain way that is a little bit different to how they think, right? So I, I often have this moment, you know, in, uh, along the years of running Policy Street. But then I realized this is actually our strength because not only... We get to see it from a, a male, typical male point of view. We also be able to then add in a different point of view. And whatever policies and whatever decisions that we made are usually much more balanced in view. And uh, I think there was a research that says that, you know, if it's a female founded uh, company, the valuation tends to be a bit more, how to say, more stable or more, um, more realistic. <laughs> and I think I kind of like bring that energy of pragmatism and realism within my partners. You know, I like the fact that they shoot for the sky, which is great because we always need someone who is ambitious and visionary. But I kind of like bring in that energy of, you know what, let's look at it in a different manner. Let, let's look at it in a in a realistic manner and then do that scenario testing, scenario analysis, analysis so that, you know, we have a better chance to achieve our goals and a better probability to succeed as a company. Yeah. And were there ever times where you were treated differently as a female founder? And if there were times like that, how would you sort of handle those situations? Right. So in the early stage of our startup, you know, I was also still in my bright eye uh, looking self. Right? I was in my 20s. I remember standing next to my partners and the first thing that people will, will go to, it's always... It's always the partners. It's always the, the guys, right? Because they're taller, they are bigger size, and I guess they have, they exude that kind of authority. And sometimes people do think that I'm probably the EA or the executive assistant or the personal assist, <laughs> assistant of, of, for them. I do have that kind of uh, uh, experience, right? You know, you tend to get overlooked uh, for certain conversations. So those are the first 
I guess, the first few years of um, of running a startup. And the second prominent one was um, going to in, a different insurance companies and pitching to them to partner with us. So some people will say, oh, is it just you? Um, I, are, are you waiting for someone else? And I'll tell them, no, it's just me. I'm representing the company. <laughs> you know, it's those moments where you think to yourself, oh, yeah, you know, they think that you can't hold on your own. Um, I do also get some in the past, condescending remarks like, um, you know, they would say, oh, you look nice. Things like that, you know, that that it's just out of context of the conversation that we're having, you know. It's not about how I look nice. It's about what kind of value I can bring to your, yeah. to this mutual <laughs> partnership. So it's always these moments where it just reminds you that, you know, it's not your fault, right? Because you're they're just ignorant. They just never seen this and have experienced this kind of scenario before. Um, but it also takes um, us to then educate them to continue to then push forward to make this a norm, right? I also remember things like, you know, during the early days where we, we needed to register ourselves for uh, statutory uh, contributions like EPF and whatnot. So I would go to the pajabat, I will go to the office and then they'll say, Cik, you nak buat untuk syarikat you, which, which also translates to Oh, Miss, are you helping your company, uh, your bosses to register your company? And then I'll go, I am the boss. <laughs> <laughs> it's moments like this when I thought, okay, you know what? Because because it's rare, right? It's rare to, to see this um in the mainstream, right? So which is the reason why, you know, Amanda, you and I, we have to, we have to, you know, push forward. You know, that it becomes so normal that no one actually have to make this kind of remarks anymore. <laughs> The funny thing is that I realized on one hand, there are people who are actually like maybe saying it in a in a not so good way. Like it's not, it's intentionally yep. discriminatory. But I realized there are also some people who just have never encountered women in the workplace in this level, or they're just not yep. used to speaking to women. Therefore, they have their blunders, which is sort of motivating yep. in a way because you feel like, okay, at least if I keep doing this, uh, maybe it's better for other people's experiences in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yep yep exactly and i think one of the things i saw recently is that you guys at policy street have grown a lot over over the past year and i think you play a big role in that in your product role and also in the ways that um, you work with policy street on marketing how has the experience been in mean, the past few years of running policy street it's definitely different from the early days now i think maybe it's a lot more growing and scaling so what was yeah. the experience like over the past year and what do you feel like you've focused more on or you've changed? Yeah, sure. So I think in the early years, it was about survival, right? Trying to prove that, you know, we are um, important, we are relevant in this market. But ever since, especially after pandemic, I think there is a greater emphasis on digital and insurance and more and more insurance companies, even themselves, they are also undergoing some form of digitization. I think our timing is is perfect. Um, number two, I think the role that I have embodied in Policy Street, um, it has changed many times as well. So at first, you know, I was the de facto product person. You know, I took care of the tech, the operations, the, the product, right? The insurance product and also the tech product. But I only have so much knowledge in those areas. And so as we became bigger, you know, we started to hire the right experts to, 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 to manage and helm those roles. And over time, you know, we went from becoming just merely a platform and then we became an intermediary 
And we also became a financial advisor that's approved by Central Bank of Malaysia. Um, that was in 2019. So right now we are five years in becoming a financial advisor in, in Malaysia. And in 2021, you know, that was also a pivotal moment for the company where we started to, we have the license to actually underwrite uh, our own policies. And this license was actually uh, granted by the Labuan Financial Services Authority. So that gives us a very huge upper hand because not only we are able to distribute, we are able to then work with multiple insurance partners, we are also then able to select and handpick the risks that we wish to underwrite. So I felt that, you know, my role is like a full circle. I came from the insurance actuarial role and I went to strategy and then did strategy as an entrepreneur, you know, devil into operations, tech, product, a little bit of talent management as well. And then now I'm going back full circle to become a, a principal officer in the reinsurance company, really setting up all the all the foundational stones of, of, of uh, making of the reinsurance company and reapplying what I remember, you know, like 13 years ago, you know, how do you price a product? How do you reserve a product? So I, I think that it is very... Um, interesting you know it's an interesting journey and it shows that nothing is wasted in in life because whatever that you have gained from your past and whatever things that you have learned from the past somehow or somewhere you'll be able to apply it one day in a different capacity in in, a, in ways that you cannot imagine like i've never imagined myself running an insurance a reinsurance company to begin with you know it's never in my wildest dreams but yes but yet you know i'm able to then apply those skill sets that i've learned um, you know, 13 years ago. So yeah, it's been a very interesting journey uh, for us. We are growing from a startup to now a growth company where we're not thinking about survival anymore. You know, we have a team now, not just uh, a founder team of three, but also a management team of seven. So we have people who are, you know, our trusted generals who are running their each individual areas of responsibilities. And back then, I will be able to know each and every part of the business. Now, I can't really know the day-to-day -day anymore because, you know, it's just too much now, right? right? Sometimes people tell me that, oh, I just got something from your, your, your website. I'm like, oh, oh, really? Great. You know, I don't even know that anymore, you know, because I don't see those numbers to, to that, that minute detail anymore. But my point is, you know, it is a, it is a season, right? It's a changing season. And we're so glad that, um, you know, you've pointed out that, you know, we have achieved a huge milestone, uh, you know, five times growth last year. And we're aiming for more, you know, we're aiming for, you know, setting up that structure of, of managing more uh, effectively to lead more effectively. And uh, we're looking forward to also share a very exciting news uh, coming up soon for our company. Uh, stay tuned. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we would like to actually, you know, do more outside of Malaysia as well. You know, we have always been known uh, to be present in Malaysia and strong in Malaysia. And yes, we want to be an undisputed champion in Malaysia but we also want to spread our wings uh, regionally as well. So I think for people who are less familiar with insurance, like what is the real impact of being able to underwrite the policies yourselves? Right. Yes. So because insurance has always been very much convoluted in the past, right? So when you distribute, it's you can only impact the channels that you use. You can only um, do promotion and things like that. But the actual construct of the product you can't change because those products are actually regulated and also 
um, by, by the central bank and also the different uh, insurance authorities and whatnot. So the ability to underwrite is basically to be able to change the construct of the product, you know, so you can actually um, underwrite certain risks that are not usually favorable by the existing incumbents because they have a certain kind of rules that they, you know, certain kind of appetite. As an insurtech, to be able to underwrite, it means that, you know, we are able to expand the kind of risk that we want to, we want to underwrite, we want to uh, be able to support our partners in a more holistic manner. Sometimes the product that we created are have no existence before we, we came in, right? And we had to actually, um, you know, work with the partner, design the product, and then eventually co-underwrite with a insurance partner. And that will then speed up the market, uh, speed up the go-to-market as well. So before it's more of like distributing it as in selling it and marketing it on different channels, but now you actually play yeah. a bigger role in like selecting sort of the structure of the insurance, right? Yeah. Maybe I can just give you an example. Like, I don't know whether your listeners like Haiti Lao. Uh, you know, this, this. Uh, I like Haiti Lao. Chain, right? <laughs> That's uh, enough. <laughs> you like? <laughs> I'm a so, listener. <laughs> so you, I don't know whether you're familiar with the Haiti Lao model. So when they first started, you know, they're really good at their branding. You know, you get a manicure, pedicure. You get to uh, have all these, um, you know, peripheral services as you wait for your hot pot, right? Yeah. Your turn for the hot pot. But back then, they were just a branding their channels, right? Their channels. As they grew bigger, they actually invested more into their 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 upstream, right? Whereby they started to acquire suppliers of your fish balls, suppliers of this and that. So eventually, they control the value chain of the fish balls and the meats and whatnot because they are able to then control the price of their cost of goods sold and the distribution network and all that. Then eventually, they no longer just distribute to Haiti Lao outlets. They actually distribute to their competitors because they know that the competitors would pay less price for those raw goods uh, than, than sourcing elsewhere because Haiti Lao has the economies of scale. So similarly to Policy Street, right? We are no longer just head on with the agents or the other insurtechs out there. As a reinsurance company, I can work and collaborate with my insurance partners, agents, and even other insurtechs out there because I can now give you that fishbowl. I don't necessarily need to buy the fishbowl from an insurance company. I can give you that fishbowl. Yeah, so, you know, I know it's a bit weird, you know, comparing Haiti Lao and uh, insurtech, but I hope that it gives you that, uh, that, that uh, good clarity. Yeah, it's also making me hungry, but I think I understand it a lot better now. So on top of that, now the fish balls are also probably better tasting, right? You've controlled the quality of the fish ball too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We can control it. We can, um, you know, do R&D on it. And then that is, you know, pretty much within our control. Very cool. Well, another question I have is like, how have you sort of scaled yourself in the past one year? You know, achieving five times growth is probably really taxing on a personal level. So how... Um, in your over past six years, and especially over the last one year, how have you scaled yourself as a founder and in your current role? Great, great. So as a founder, um, because we are in this growth stage, a lot of focus is really on what I want to do um, in as a founder, you know, to alleviate the company to the next level. Um, in the past year, I personally has done have done a lot of soul searching, right? And I can no longer be so meticulous and so involved in the day-to-day because that is not doing my team justice. We, I need to, I had to learn to let go and to be able to empower them to do what they do best. 
I think in the past, you know, I've always been a very meticulous person. I uh, like to see things in the details. I kind of had to force myself to step away and really um, let them to, to thrive. And so over the past year, that has been a real change from, you know, being that uh, to work alongside them to, to achieve the goal. I will usually uh, now let them to run it and we will just have our weekly uh, regroups to talk about the strategic aspects of things and then uh, really give them the full trust and confidence that they can do their best. So that as a founder, you know, has been a real shift. And in that sense, you know, you free up your time to do uh, bigger things for the, for, the, for the company. And in terms of the business, yep, so it has been a change from the day-to-day to now looking at more regional expansion to looking at the reinsurance side. Because as a reinsurer, maybe for the benefit of the audience as well, as a reinsurer, I'm not bounded by country jurisdiction in a sense, right? So because I get to, my, my underwriting is actually on an onshore basis. So I can actually underwrite risks as long as I have a local season, I can underwrite risks from Japan, Singapore, Cayman Islands. As long as there is an opportunity, I, we can go there. But of course, right now, we want to focus on Southeast Asia. So that's where we want to double down on in the next few years. I think that's a great point. Like a lot of the sort of process of growing into your founder was also stopping, like not doing certain things anymore. And I think that's something else I have to remind myself, right? I think you talked about how you had to stop doing the day-to-day and now you have to delegate that to other people so they can do better but so also you can do better yeah, yeah. were there times where yeah. it was really hard to let go or like certain functions that were hard to stop doing <laughs> apart from the the meticulousness yeah yeah, yeah. I, I used to have this very bad habit of like thinking that I could do better and therefore I might as well do it because I can do things three times two times faster yeah but that kind of thinking is quite limiting because it shows that like you're always the barrier, you're always that stumbling block to something happening, right? And I think it stems from the fact that uh, I want to remain relevant in my own company. It's strange, right? As a female, <laughs> you also think like, oh, am I still relevant in, in my company, you know? Um, because this is what I do best, you know? If I bring someone else, does it mean that I'm no longer relevant, Right. And I also have these moments where I have this imposter syndrome, right? Like, oh, you know, am I still useful in this setting? And I think this takes a lot of soul searching and a lot of self-awareness, whereby it's not, as a founder, you're not bounded by a specific role because to in order to, to, to go to the next level, you know, founders are meant to be generalists because that's just the pathway that we've chosen, right? You are meant to be generalists. You're meant to focus on the key items of strategic and also talent management. And so, um, yeah, after much uh, reminders and uh, much soul searching, finally, you know, I got to, you know, really uh, let go in peace. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that some of my colleagues, probably if they are listening right now, they, they always know that like I'm, I'm someone who is quite involved anyways uh, <laughs> in what shapes or form. Um, so I always like, um, I like to check in with them. Uh, mostly out of care, not so much on micromanaging, but it's more out of care. You know, are they doing okay? You know, is there any help that I can do? You know, I like to also um still still want to act as a fellow colleague to be able to support whenever I can. And I guess to wrap up, I have one question that I ask everybody I speak to on the podcast, and that is outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And for that, there's no timeline. It could be something you want to achieve this month, next week, next year, even after five years. But What's top of mind when I ask you that question? 
Wow. Okay. I think leading up to, I guess, the continuing from the previous question, I think greatest self-awareness. I know we are such organic beings, right? As, as human beings, um, every little thing that happens to us actually teaches a little bit about ourselves. And so right now we are in this season where I personally, I'm married now. You know, my, my, my husband and I are also, you know, seeing whether, you know, family, uh, the season of having a family is upon us or not. So it's really having that, that, that self-awareness of, um, you know, balancing between uh, the growth of the company and also potentially, you know, starting a family soon. And uh, this fear and this uh, fear of the unknown, you know, what's what's going to happen to the company if I'm if I'm if I'm I'm really, you know, taking the next step in my personal life and things like that. I think it all stems from the self awareness and also understanding that uh, these are all very normal. Uh, you know, as you venture into a new season of life, and I also want to to be able to be a testament, right, to to people who want to who want to um, be in my shoes of. And, you know, achieving both a thriving career and also a balanced uh, family life. And so I think, uh, you know, to answer your question, greater self-awareness in terms of the season that I'm under, you know, undertaking uh, in the near future. Well, thank you so much, Winnie. I really appreciate your honesty with the whole conversation. I feel like it doesn't feel like it's recorded at all, <laughs> except for a few <laughs> questions that are a bit more work-related than I usually ask. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, just two ladies just having a, a great chat. Yes, and I hope we get to do this some other time soon. 